Welcome to the Daily Boogie. Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Monday night, plenty to get through. Hope you had a lovely weekend. I certainly have. Grab yourself a beverage, grab yourself a snack. I do want to take calls tonight, by the way, so if you're interested in getting on the show and letting people know what you think, please jump in the Discord and uh, we'll get to you as soon as we get a chance. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Daily Boogie Podcast. I am Boogie Bumper, your host. Hopefully for the next hour or so, we'll see how long it takes. We might have to go a little bit longer, as always. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you had a lovely weekend. Because it seems plenty of people didn't have a lovely weekend. We will get to all of that. Just a quick reminder, if you want to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. Become a subscriber by hitting the subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And of course, if you would like to push upon me a certain set of ideals using emotive language, then you can do so by following me on Twitter at Boogie Bumper. <laughs> OC Mike, thanks for joining us. <laughs> what OC Mike is referring to there was a temporary suspension that I received on Twitter for expressing my deep admiration for libertarian skanks. I can't even remember the context of the discussion, but it was a reply to somebody else and they were talking about skanks and I said, well, of course, libertarian skanks would have to be the best skanks because they're completely uninhibited. They have no rules, right? They don't have the kinds of hang-ups that other kinds of skanks would normally have because they're all about freedom and individual choice (laughs) and individual liberty. So I did get a temporary suspension for that. I did appeal, though, and the good people of Twitter did get back in touch and said, we're very sorry, it looks like we made a mistake, and they reinstated me. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for acknowledging my deep admiration for the libertarian skanks and recognising that it was not hateful conduct in any way, shape, or form. There you go. An actual, a positive Twitter story to start us off for tonight. I bet nobody saw that coming. (laughs) You mean somebody appealed and got on the right side of Twitter? Jesus. How the hell does that work? So, plenty to get through. Um, We are going to touch on some of the media responses, some of the political positioning in regards to the gun debate following the two shootings in the United States. I also want to share with you a document that I was reminded of when watching a few clips preparing for tonight's show. Uh, it's a it's a handbook that was written back in 2011, and I had to go searching through my archives because I downloaded it years ago. And I was like, oh, wait, I remember this. So back in 2011... Uh, some people wrote a handbook on how to argue for gun control. And I remember reading it a couple of times back in the day. If you haven't seen this handbook, I will tweet it out. It will be part of the show notes, like all the things that we refer to during the show uh, on the Podbean website. 
And if you haven't seen this thing, this is going to blow your mind. And all it will clear up a lot of the fog that inevitably flies around during these gun control debates in the United States. It will clear up a lot of stuff for you. So I'm looking forward to breaking that down with you. I've also got a couple of clips from left field. A couple of clips. No, not the baseball field. Not the baseball field where politicians get shot. Uh, just left field, generally speaking. Some weird and wonderful clips from around the web. And like I said, I do want to take some calls. So if you want to get on the show, share your ideas, share your opinions about what's going on at the moment in the news, then please do so by jumping in the Discord. Uh, jump in the waiting room. And then when we get a chance, we'll get right back to you. So let's kick it off with El Presidente. Senor Trumpo. Let me start it off with this. Um, first of all, I, if, I, if I'm going to piss people off, if I'm going to piss Trump supporters off, I'm going to do it at the start of the show today and get it out of the way. I find it very humorous and very funny that there is a large section, and no names, I'm not going to mention any names, but there is a large section of, you know, uh, social media influencers. God, I hate that term. <laughs> But there is a large selection of quote-unquote social media influencers who, whatever the president says now at this point, must be right. Whatever he decides to do, it's a good idea. And then the exercise then becomes over the next week or two trying to discover new and wonderful ways why we can argue that he's right. And oftentimes people will now be for things that they were against last week just because the president says it's a good idea all of a sudden. And, you know, I think there's support and then there's maniacal sheep-like following. And one I have no problem with, support is fine, when it comes to, well, you know, I'm I'm against, uh, you know, these kinds of checks and these insanity profiles and stuff for people who want guns because that can always be abused by the government and they'll start declaring that everyone is mentally ill just because they want to have a gun and it'll be a backdoor to total gun bans, blah, blah, blah. And the president comes out and says, you know, we really should be looking at some of this red flag stuff. And then the very same people all of a sudden start lining up going, well, you know, I've always been in favor of more checks. I don't think anybody wants crazy people to have guns, am I right? <laughs> like, just like that. And, you know, people might criticize me for this, but I'm not an American, so who gives a fuck what you think? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> people are like, you absolutely must support everything the president says no matter what. I'm like, well, you might have to, but I don't. So, so putting that to one side, there is... Um, there are a couple of tough spots here for the president. Now, first of all, there has been mass shootings under previous administrations before, but I think what we can all agree on is that the hyper-sensitive, hyper-focused, hyper-oppositional media was not there, right? So it was much easier for presidents in previous years to walk the minefield of not upsetting their donor base or not upsetting their activist base in the case of Democrats, whilst at the same time not upsetting gun owners, which go across the board, both left and right, Republican and Democrat. It's a very difficult situation for a president to be in. Because if you think about it, it all depends on where the votes are. Now, I would suspect that most of the gun control advocates would be in the 
very deep blue centers, that being New York and LA. So in the middle part of the country, in the purple districts, there would be a lot of Democrats who would be against, you know, across the board gun control. And the Democrats know this, which is why they never, when they have the opportunity, this is why they never really push for it. They make a lot of noise in order to mobilize people at elections. But when they have the opportunity to write legislation, they don't do it because they know it would upset a lot of their own base as well in middle America. So if the majority of the votes for sweeping gun reforms are in LA and New York, it, it is pointless to do it. Reason being, it's not so much how many people agree with a particular policy, it's where those people are that's most important. Because if all the people are in two cities and those two cities are already voting for somebody, then it doesn't matter what you do. They're going to continue to vote for that person anyway, you see? But if those people are spread out in purple districts across the rest of the country and that particular policy drive will flip their vote from one side to the other, then you have to do calculations. The, the second longest serving Australian Prime Minister, a guy named John Howard, who was in power for 12 years, I think, 12 years, he once famously said that winning elections is less about ideology and more about mathematics. This is exactly what he was talking about. It's not just what people want, it's what people want in the place where they are that counts. That's how you can flip districts from red to blue and blue to red. So it puts Donald Trump in a difficult position in so much as he really is in a no-win situation here. Now, we're about to watch a film clip and he's going to come out and denounce white supremacy and white right racism and terrorist violence and whatnot. But we are now at the stage where it literally doesn't matter what he says because they're going to say that it's not good enough or he's just paying lip service or he doesn't really care or he needs to go further in his condemnation because they've been saying for the longest time that he is a white supremacist, you see. So it's not going to come out, he's not going to, if he comes out and says, well, white, white supremacism, white supremacy is really bad and white terrorism is really bad, the, the corporate press and his political opponents are not suddenly going to turn around and say, oh, okay, good, he's, he's no longer a white supremacist, good, thanks. That's over. Now we can talk about taxes again, that's not going to happen. So really, I think he would probably have a lot of people around him who are saying, you have to make a statement, you have to say something, you have to denounce this again. Because we know we played the clips last night on uh, Trust and Verify. He's already denounced white supremacy. But again, it doesn't matter anymore because people just roll on as if it didn't happen to keep the story going. So I'm sure that is a lot of people around him and he himself is probably thinking, I have to say something, I have to say something. But he has to say the right thing because if he goes too far, then he's going to upset the people who vote for him and the people whose votes he needs to win in the purple districts, which are hanging by a thread. You see what I'm getting at here, right? So it's a very difficult position that uh, he's in at the moment, politically. And whether or, whether or not it works, whether or not he comes out the end of it, time will tell. Uh, I suspect that this is more about PR. You 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 make a statement, you denounce, you address it, and then you hope that you know something else happens in the next day or two, or in the next few days, which the media cycle will then roll onto. And you know, as time goes on, people would say, "Oh, this is that's not fair. It shouldn't be that way." Unfortunately, this is the way it is. After some kind of tragic event, the 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 emotional outcries and the passion only last so long. And eventually it starts to dwindle away. 
and politicians know this, whether they're on the right or the left, which is why, um, you know, people urge don't do knee-jerk reactions after specific events because a week from now, people might not care as much as they do right now. Or if you're trying to get a reaction, do it right now because in a week or so, people won't care as much as they do right now. So we won't have the political capital in order to change some kind of law or do something about it. So let's play a little bit of Donald Trump and see if we can work through the difficulties that he's going to be facing in the next 24 to 48 hours in order to position himself in such a way as to, one, you know, he's not going to keep his opponents at bay. They're going to keep piling on no matter what. But I suspect the main concern here is not upsetting large groups of supporters in middle America in very tight, you know, toss-up districts which are maybe on the fence of whether or not they would vote for him again in 2020. So let's have a look. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind ravages the heart and devours the soul. We have asked the FBI to identify all further resources they need to investigate and disrupt hate crimes. See, particularly emotive language there. So whoever wrote this speech, usually it's not one person that writes a speech. It's usually a collaborative effort. Uh, There'll be one or two people writing a speech, getting input from the person delivering the speech. So you can see their particular use of emotive language and, you know, talking about barbarism and what and whatnot. Very emotive language, which, again, is trying to uh, put up a put up a front and put up a roadblock to those who would say that he doesn't care enough. But again, I would put it to you at this point, it doesn't really matter what the president says anymore. Whatever he says isn't going to be good enough in the corporate press and the talking heads and his political opponents will just write it off as mere lip service. So. You know, the decision to that has to be that has to be considered when President Trump and his advisors are coming up with responses to events. I'm not sure if it is or not. I'm not sure if it is, but it should be front and center, knowing that whatever he says, nothing is going to be good enough. That's just a political reality for him right now. He will never win over the people who have been chasing him down for the last three years. That is not going to happen. So you need to focus on the people who are on the fence, on the independents. And people say, oh, it's not all about elections. Well, it, it kind of is. <laughs> everything, everything that politicians do is about getting re-elected or staying in office or trying to get some kind of law passed. Everything, every speech, every comment, every tweet, all of them, not just Donald Trump, but all of them. This is just a reality. If it wasn't, they wouldn't be there. So, And domestic terrorism, whatever they need. We must recognize that the internet has provided a dangerous avenue to radicalize disturbed minds and perform demented acts. Whoa. Whoa. Hey, 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 hey. Now, Mr. President, (laughs) people who are long-term listeners to this show and long-term watchers of this broadcast will know one of our hot topics, one of our niche topics, if you want to put it that way, is the topic of internet freedom in all of its fragility in all it's it's like a 
It's like a little baby crying for titty milk in a in a cradle somewhere. It just needs to be nurtured, internet freedom. The internet by human standards is a very, very recent phenomenon. And it's a very liberalising phenomenon in so much as we can have conversations unfettered and unregulated with people all over the world simultaneously. That has never been achievable before. It is a miracle of the modern age, the internet, and what it's done to communication. Not saying it's all good, but it's definitely not all bad. So when politicians, I don't care if they are devout Marxists or President Donald Trump, when politicians start blaming the internet for madmen picking up automatic rifles and shooting people in shopping malls, my eye starts to twitch. Because we saw what happened down here after the Christchurch shooting. After the Christchurch shooting... Uh, governments in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, Western Europe and other places were quick to ban websites, ban access to websites, and they started talking about regulating live streaming. Maybe we had former uh, executives at Facebook come out and say, maybe we should ban live streaming altogether. Because you see, the dumbed down sledgehammer political response to any kind of tragedy, usually in a in a in a kind of exercise to save their own ass from criticism so they can win re-election is to uh, apply the ban hammer to all things which may threaten their PR standing in the world. So if, don't, if President Donald Trump is going to start meandering down the path of internet regulation because crazy people in the United States are shooting innocent people in shopping malls, then that's something that I can't support. Now, I wonder how many people who are free speech advocates, how many people who are online social media influencers, ladies and gentlemen, the MAGA social media influencers who are all about free speech, and it's not fair that I'm getting censored. It's not fair. These Tech Valley guys are censoring us. They're taking us off the internet unfairly. I I want you all, ladies and gentlemen, this is your homework, to if this conversation progresses further, If Donald Trump starts talking about regulation of the internet and getting rid of certain websites and whatnot and blaming the internet for mass shootings, if that progresses further, I want you to see how many of these free speech MAGA hat wearing activists, free speech absolutists, all of a sudden start turning around and saying, yeah, well, you know what? There's just some people on the internet that we can do without. I think we can all agree with that. I want you to count them for me. See if they've got the guts to do it. See if they've got the guts to sell their soul and sell their audience and sail them down the river in order to maintain their standing as one of the top red hat dogs on the interwebs. Just putting that out there as a thought. Just putting that out there. Don't try to act surprised when you see it happen. That's all I'm saying. We must shine light on the dark recesses of the internet and stop mass murders before they start. The internet censoring the inter- censoring the internet will stop shootings. <laughs> now don't get upset because if you're one of the people who have been watching this show, you've seen that I have hit conservative politicians before for this exact kind of rhetoric and If I'm being honest with my audience and standing on principle, I can't bloody well stop now, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm interested to see how far this is going to go.
That likewise is used for human trafficking, illegal drug distribution, and so many other heinous crimes. The perils of the Internet and social media cannot be ignored, and they will not be ignored. Oh, dear. In the two decades since oh, Columbine, dear. our nation has watched with rising horror mm. and dread as one mass shooting has followed another over and over again, decade after decade. We cannot allow ourselves to feel powerless. We can and will stop this evil contagion. In that task, we must honor the sacred memory of those we have lost by acting as one people. Open wounds cannot heal if we are divided. Yes, yeah, so censor the internet. That'll solve it. That'll solve the problem. That'll solve the problem. You know, there will be less people shooting each other indiscriminately in the street if only there was no internet. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I would point your attention to some of the most violent places on earth and their access to the internet. Scarce as it is, the crime seems to remain. The crime seems to remain. Like I said, now, is he just saying... Now, here's the other thing. Here's, now, let me bring you back. Let me bring you back to the bosom. Let me bring you back and let me, you know, uh, spit up some food for you, baby birds, for, to chew on. Let me bring you back to the, to the light. We do know that President Trump and this administration does have a habit of making threats and not following through on them in order to get something else out of the deal. Is this one of those occasions? Because it would be, you know, remiss of me to say that President Trump threatening to declassify documents is unlikely to occur because he makes threats and doesn't follow through on them. Uh, to which, by the way, uh, I was 100% right on the Joe, De Do uh, pardon me, the Joe DeGeneva thing. I said Joe DeGeneva saying documents are going to be released to the public on Wednesday last week. Do you remember that on Monday's show? I said I suspect it's probably not going to happen. For the next 24, 48 hours, people are going to be swirling around saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then when it doesn't come, people are going to make excuses why it didn't come. Something changed. Oh, something changed. There was this event and therefore they couldn't release the documents now or there's some kind of different timeline or dig a bigger plan at play. That's why it didn't happen. Where You know, it's all part of the theatre. I told you exactly this was going to happen. So, notch that one up for Boogie Bumper. So, it would be remiss of me then to say that uh, certain threats are getting made to get certain things and then not put this potentially in the same category. It could be. This could be something that he throws out there knowing that it would be nigh on politically impossible to do anything about it. Knowing that regulation of the internet is by and large uh, a very hot issue, but, but a very complicated one. And it's not something that all people agree with. And, you know, blaming the internet for mass shootings might keep a few people in the talking head class happy. But obviously, you know, there is a large energetic section of Donald Trump's support base which would not be too impressed with this turn toward internet censorship and regulation, especially after what everybody's been complaining about for the last two or three years. But again, I'll put it to you. Let's see how many people complain when Donald Trump starts talking about why it's important to regulate and censor the internet. Let's see how many people stick to their guns on that issue. Because I will. I will. No problems there whatsoever. So this could be an empty threat. 
we'll just have to wait and see what happens. I want to see how the conversation progresses in that regard. And if this is something he actually pursues or not, or is just throwing out there as a bit of burly, a bit of chum for his political opponents to chew on while he moves on to something else. Like I said, at this point, it doesn't really matter what the president says in regards to white supremacy or terrorism or white nationalism, because it's not going to be good enough anyway. Uh, much like when people demand apologies from somebody for saying something that they deem to be offensive, it, the apology isn't really about uh, treating some kind of ill feeling. It's not about making the person who feels offended against feel better. The apology is about power. It's about saying to somebody, I have the power to make you denounce your own speech. And in that respect, the paradigm then shifts where the victim becomes the powerful one in the relationship because the victim has the power to make the, the aggressor denounce their own speech, right? So it becomes politically expedient to be the victim in most cases these days with everybody falling over themselves and handing in their mother stepping over their family to apologize for things that they ought not apologize for. So putting that to one side, we know that regardless of what Donald Trump says, people aren't just going to snap out of it and suddenly think that he's no longer a white supremacist when they are his opponents. I give you exhibit A. You know, Nia, it, it just brings to my mind, it, it, it's a national embarrassment. I mean, who cares how strong our economy is or how strong our military is if Americans are killing Americans like this over and over and over again, Nia? No, I, I think that's right. Only in Who cares? Who cares how strong our economy is if Americans are killing each other over and over and over? I would say to that, um, you're very lucky that your economy is as good as it is lest there be more killings, because what we do know from the poorest places on Earth with the most poorly run economies on Earth, uh, the killing seems to be a lot worse. <laughs> Generally, what happens is where there is abject poverty and hopelessness, that's where lots of killings tend to take place. That's where murder rates tend to be higher, because you see, somebody that doesn't have much sees somebody who has more and kills them to take it. That's generally what happens. So to say, well, who cares how good our economy is as long as people are killing each other, that's kind of anathema. <laughs> because if the economy wasn't as good as it is, uh, people would be killing each other a hell of a lot more. And actually, in times of economic prosperity, what they don't mention here is uh, that the total killing, the total murder rate is actually going down in the United States and has been going down for a long time. It has been decreasing year after year after year after year. And in times of economic prosperity, crime does tend to go lower. Because as I said, put it this way, what do you think a welfare payment is? This is like politics 101. What do you think, uh, this is like social contract 101, right? Political philosophy 101. Why do you think welfare payments exist? Do you think welfare payments exist so politicians can look like the good guy and hand out money to the downtrodden to get back on their feet because it's all about empathy. Do you think that's the reason? Uh, let me tell you, that's not that's not the reason. The reason welfare exists is it's a bribe that the rest of society pays to poor people so they don't rob them. That is literally why welfare is a thing. 
Welfare exists to give people just enough money so it entices them not to turn to a life of crime. It is cheaper to hand out money in the form. It is cheaper to hand out resources in the form of welfare than it is to fight crime and get security and chase down criminals and protect your shit. That's why welfare exists to keep just enough food in people's bellies so they don't riot in the streets. It's got nothing to do with empathy. It's got nothing to do with you know helping the downtrodden. They really don't care about the downtrodden as long as they aren't rioting in the streets. If you're downtrodden and you're, you know, smoking yourself to death in a shitty apartment in New York somewhere where the water doesn't work and you can barely afford to eat, you are not a problem. Once you go out on the streets and trying to start steal money or riot for more shit, that's when you become a problem. That's why you're getting the welfare, to keep you in your shitty apartment smoking yourself to death. America. This is a, a unique problem uh, to this uh, time in American history where you have this proliferation of guns. You can talk about mental health, you can talk about video games all you want, but as Wes pointed out, uh, certainly there are mental health issues in other countries. There are video games. The, the video game stuff um, makes my eye twitch as well. I tell you, I tell you, the problem is video games. Now, there is an issue in so much as video games are far more realistic now than they used to be, and it may have a desensitizing effect as to what people will uh, be able to see and what people will be able to stand. I suspect I'm one of the people who think in the future that, you know, that it's probably going to be robots on the battlefield with children playing them and that the wars will be fought through a kind of video game setup. I don't think that that's too far-fetched especially when you see some of the technology in virtual reality now. But we're a long way away from that, potentially. So, blaming the internet, blaming the video games, right? For me, it's, it's, it's just, we've just got to push it on to whatever we can, push it on to something else. And there'll be a lot of people, <clears throat> I'm sad to say, you know, this is a, probably a generational issue, a lot of people who will sit back and go, yeah, well, I, I did a... Those video games have always been a problem. You know, back in, back in my day, we used to play stickball. <clears throat> and of course, you know, we didn't have the violent video games where we'd uh, shoot people and uh, see all the blood and gore and uh, disgusting violence on the video games. No, we used to just go out and play stickball. And uh, then, of course, uh, every now and then, a, a small Negro boy would walk up and try to play with us and we'd beat him with our stick. And it was much, much more friendly. <laughs> No, I'm just making that up. So, <laughs> so uh, blaming video games. Eh, eh, dangerous rabbit hole. Dangerous slippery slope right there. Uh, in other countries uh, as well. And the other unique part of... I know what we should do. We should, we should ban all violent movies and all violent video games and we should regulate the internet. Yeah, mega, right? Am I right? Woo! Yeah, Donald Trump, baby! Woo! Yeah, I'm a big supporter of Donald Trump, and I think what we should really do is ban the violent video games and ban the violent movies, and we should start regulating art. Yeah, we need to regulate art and entertainment, and we need to start censoring the internet because censorship is wrong. Woo, MAGA, yeah! <laughs> Vote Trump, huh? Okay. I think I, maybe maybe you haven't maybe you haven't thought this through, comrade. 
Perhaps you might be jumping ahead here. Let's carry on. Of this era is Trump's rhetoric on race, his rhetoric about black uh, and brown people and the Republican Party's uh, unwillingness to really talk about it and, and in some ways really pick up that language. A lot of that quote unquote rhetoric about black and brown people is manufactured. But I just want to skip ahead here to this guy. The guy who kind of looks like the cop off the old uh, the show The Shield. I forget the actor's name. The guy down the bottom here. He's a Republican and he he gets offended at this point because, hey, I've called out the president. I've called out the president for saying racist things. It's not fair. You shouldn't lump me into those crowds. You shouldn't lump me into that. I'm a good guy. I call the guy out. Uh, little does he know that nobody cares on this panel. So let's have a look. Be fair. You be, should be fair to me. Of the United you, you, States you know, go to rallies in which people... Right. Let's let David respond if we the can. The President of the United States. Yeah. So, so Nia, okay. sure. Nia, sure. I, I think to be fair to me, you should you should recognize that I do call the president out each and every time, and every one of those instances you talk about, I have said it, the president should not do that. It is not it's not helpful. It's not right, and I call him out each and every time. So I think you should be fair and acknowledge that. And, and, and you and you realize I think it's time. Go go ahead go ahead go ahead, Del Luis. I think it's time that you. I think it I think it's time. To stop talking, uh, look, that's good that you call the president out. You're a good boy for calling the president out. You're a very good boy for calling the president out and getting offended when he says things, but... It's time to turn your back ah. on this president. It's time to abandon and stop supporting oh, okay. this Con- president. Con- as long you, as you, you, people you. do that, he will continue to speak to these issues. Yes, in America, sometimes you have to take on your own leader. And I know what you're going to say, that we should do the same thing. Well, guess what? When Barack Obama refused to keep his promise on immigration, Democrats are the ones that took him on, called him deporter-in-chief, and had him change his ways. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, we did an article last night on Trust to Verify that says uh, Democrats who criticize Barack Obama's presidency uh, risk being unpopular with Democrat voters because Democrats' popularity with Democrat voters uh, is a whopping 97% even today, believe it or not. Believe it or not. Uh, let's go to Jake, T- Jake Tapper, get some commentary from Jake Tapper. In our politics lead today, President Trump today condemning racism, bigotry, and white supremacy, though he made no acknowledgement of his own rhetoric, which even former White House staffers and Republican (laughs) members of Congress have called racist or racially divisive. (laughs) Do you see my point? It doesn't matter what the guy says. It doesn't matter what he condemns. It doesn't matter what he throws out there. It's not going to be good enough. Sure, President Donald Trump came out and said that uh, white supremacy is evil and white terrorism is wrong, but he didn't apologize for the things he says. He didn't say that he's a white supremacist. He didn't He didn't go far enough. And if he does come out and say, yeah, yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, I guess, okay, you got me. I'm really a white supremacist. I'm a white nationalist kind of guy. I'm a big white nationalist, tremendous white nationalist. I've got a KKK uniform in my wardrobe. Uh, you know, I've been a big supporter of white nationalism and white supremacy my whole life. You know, I've got that German German blood in me, so, you know, it makes sense, right? If he actually did came, come out and say that, then they'd say, the president didn't go far enough. He didn't commit suicide today because he's a white nationalist. <laughs> president Donald Trump, having admitted that he's a white nationalist, didn't go far enough. He should have resigned. 
And then he will re- okay, I'm going to step down now. Thanks. Sorry, everybody. Big white nationalist. I'm going to resign. Sorry, I put you all put you all through this horrible racism. And I'll say he didn't go far enough. He didn't jump off a bridge today like he was expected to. You know, President Donald Trump really needs to uh, throw himself in front of a Mack truck on the highway in order to appease us all for his white nationalism. And even if he does that, they'll say, well, you know, he's he didn't go far enough. He wasn't cremated and then shot into space. That's really, like, we can't really have this body here on Earth, this white nationalist. So he really needs to be cremated and, you know, shot into space, and that will please everybody. And then it won't be good enough either. It's like, well, now we've got the president orbiting around in a million pieces, orbiting around the Earth's atmosphere. We can't have that. We're going to have to move to another planet, and then maybe we'll escape his racism and bigotry. Maybe. Just maybe. Just maybe. Yes. After two mass shootings left 31 people dead, a death count that grew today by two. A source telling CNN that the president has also ordered his team to come up with possible proposals, a few of which he laid out in a speech earlier today. But after suggesting background checks for gun purchases may be a solution, in a tweet, the president stayed away from any mention of gun laws in his spoken remarks today and instead focused on this. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. CNN's Boris Sanchez picks up our coverage now from the White House. President Trump with his first significant remarks following this weekend's two mass shootings. These barbaric slaughters are an assault upon our communities, an attack upon our nation, and a crime against all of humanity. Now, the Democrats and the corporate press need to play this smart here because if they do come out and, and say, like I suspect they will, how, how evil, how awful and wrong for Donald Trump to blame mental illness on mass shootings, then that kind of puts a roadblock in front of the policies that they want to enact, which is background checks and, you know, psychological examinations for people who want guns. Because if being crazy has nothing to do with shooting a bunch of people, and if, 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 it's a, if it's only the thing that a sane, rational person will do, then why the hell are you doing background checks and psychological analysis for people who want guns? <laughs> so I, I tend to suspect, though, after the last three years, we have enough evidence in the bank to suggest that they will probably fuck it up. They will probably fuck it up and argue that mental illness has nothing to do with mass shootings. I suspect. And then, of course... Uh, terror attacks around the world, ladies and gentlemen, are not caused by some kind of mental illness. They are caused by injustice and white nationalism. You, you see, uh, people who are committing terrorist attacks in Western Europe from other parts of the world are doing so because of white supremacy and being ostracized from mainstream society. And the people who are white who are committing terrorist attacks are doing so because of white supremacy and being ostracized from mainstream society. It's a one-size-fits-all cause. Let me show you this. This is what I referred to earlier in the day. And I will tweet this out as well as it being in the show notes. This came out in 2011. I dug through my archives to dig it up for you. You're going to find this very interesting indeed. Preventing gun violence through effective messaging. You know, a big part of what we do on this show is breaking down uh, rhetoric, you know, rhetorical analysis in the media in written word, in spoken word. So if you're wondering why it is that all of the anti-gun arguments tend to look the same, and if you're wondering why 
most of the anti-gun advocates tend to say the same things, well, this is going to give you an insight into why that's the case. This is literally the handbook for arguing for gun control. It was handed out in democratic circles and activist circles in around 2011. And now, boys and girls, you're going to have it too. Preventing gun violence through effective messaging. Let's skip down here to how to use this guide. You can read this at home for yourself. Like I said, I will tweet this out. I'll tweet the link out for it. Uh, key messages. The key, the three key themes drive the most powerful arguments for gun violence prevention. One, the serious personal toll that gun violence takes on people's lives. Two, people's right to be free from violence in their communities. Three, the changing nature of weapons towards more powerful military-style ones that make us less safe. Matching messages to audience. Listen to this. On the gun violence issue, as on most public issues, it pays to know as much as possible about who you are talking to. The weight and power of the three key themes we have mentioned varies substantially by audience. As a result, when the opportunity arises to target your message, there is a great advantage to doing so. For example, when talking to men, it is important to know that they are much more motivated by protecting people from gun crime than preventing gun violence. Women are motivated by both. How to discuss the NRA is another example. It's critical to know that our base supporters are very critical of the NRA's role in enabling gun violence, but most general audiences view the NRA as a mainstream organisation. Powerful facts and images. Alarming facts open the door to action and powerful stories put feeling and emotional uh, energy behind those facts. How many times have I said on this show, to people who have watched this show long enough, you'll remember, that if you just give facts to somebody, they really don't know what to do with it. The only way to make facts effective is to tie it into a deeper story, into a deeper narrative. And what the Democrats and the left have been very good at for a long period of time, ladies and gentlemen, is using emotional rhetoric and emotional personal storytelling to tie their political message to, to in order to garner some kind of emotional response. It's not by accident. It's not because they're dumb. It's because that's what they're trained to do because it works. That's the message I'm trying to get through to you today. They argue for a reason because it works. Two, it's not helpful to try and drown your audience in a flurry of facts and statistics. It's far more effective to zero in on a handful of simple facts that are both uh, compelling and memorable. Here are some of the facts that met that in test in the research. They actually do research and focus groups in order to decide how best to confront people with emotional arguments. It's not an accident. It's not because they're stupid. It's because they're very scientific and calculated. <clears throat> there are no background checks or ID requirements in most states for private sales, including private sales at gun shows. There are virtually no restrictions on the type of weapons available for purchase in America, including assault weapons. Police and law enforcement officers are more at risk due to the availability and power of new weapons. And then they provide a reinforcing example. Police forces in places like Chicago and Miami are outfitting officers with assault weapons so they are out, aren't outgunned by criminals. It's not just about words. Point number four. Powerful and emotionally engaging images are vitally important reinforcers of strong messages. Think of the small boy washed up on the beach in Europe before the European migrant crisis, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Why do you think certain images make their way to the news directly after a shooting and certain images do not? 
what you want to see is the women and children running out of a mall crying and screaming, holding each other's hands with blood on their faces, right? Because that's a powerful image that reinforces a strong message. Again, we are reading from the 2011 How-To Handbook handed out in activist and democratic circles, preventing gun violence through effective messaging. Here, are, <clears throat> here is the overall messaging guidance, ladies and gentlemen. Key messaging principles. See, Piper Ohio saying the NRA doesn't promote gun violence. You're getting mixed up with uh, facts and how to effectively argue against somebody, Piper Ohio, with respect. They're not trying. This isn't a guide on how to say what the NRA does and does not do. This is a guide to use effective messaging, right? So you need to you need to separate the two concepts here. Overall messaging guidance, key messaging principles. Number one, always focus on emotional and value-driven arguments about gun violence, not the political food fight in Washington or wonky statistics. Number two, tell stories with images and feelings. Three, claim moral authority and the mantle of freedom. Four, Emphasize that extraordinarily dangerous military-style weapons are now within easy reach across America. Five, emphasize that America has weak gun laws and don't assume that people know that. Six, challenge the NRA on your terms, not theirs, ladies and gentlemen. So th there you go, Piper. There's your answer. Whether to spend much time talking about the NRA depends on whether we are talking to our base or broader audiences. Remember, it's all about the they, they identify the different audience. They write and argue to a specific audience at a specific time. So much so that the handbook on how to use effective messaging in the gun control debate literally says whether we're, we change our argument, whether we're talking to our base where they already hate the NRA or a broader uh, audience who doesn't hate the NRA. Even with the base, we need to always connect our comments to the NRA's role in exposing people to needless violence. Always bring it back to the NRA. Always blame the NRA, ladies and gentlemen. Constantly hit the NRA. Right? Language, do's and don'ts. <laughs> it's very detailed. This is an 80-page handbook on how to use effective messaging in the gun control debate. Language do's and don'ts. Do talk about preventing gun control violence. Don't talk about gun control. So that's why you see we need to prevent gun violence. They don't talk about gun control. Do advocate for stronger gun laws. Don't use the term stricter gun laws. Right? Four key topics. The key principles that should guide our messaging strategies. Right? One. Always start with the pain and anguish that gun violence brings into people's lives. So whenever you're going into a debate or an argument, always start with the stories of people who have been killed and the pain and misery that they are suffering. Number two, use statistics to reinforce an emotional argument, not replace it. Right? So you see the approach here. Uh, some people use statistics as the argument. Some people will say, well, you're wrong because here is statistic A, statistic B, statistic C. What they're saying you need to do in order to use quote-unquote effective messaging in the gun control debate is use an emotional argument 
and use statistics just to reinforce it. So you would open your argument with saying, you know, say, uh, Jenny, Jenny Smith, Jenny Smith lost her six-year-old son to unnecessary gun violence on the weekend. And, you know, she, she she's in mourning. Her son was shot by a high-powered rifle. And the, the amount of high-powered rifles in this city are X. Right? That's how they do it. That still throws me off. Good. <laughs> I might need to change that. Three, use images that bring your message home. Like I said, get the camera right in there, zoomed right in there on the women and children with the blood on their face for a reason, ladies and gentlemen. Even when you are only using words to make your case, use them to draw a persuasive portrait of the way gun violence disrupts people's lives and wherever possible, strengthen your message with compelling images. Number four, tell stories with feeling and energy. Because you don't, if you're trying to effectively argue gun control, you don't want to be bland and you don't want to be devoid of energy. Because it's one thing to get up there and say, too many people are dying from unnecessary gun violence in the United States and we need to do something about it. That would be one approach. If you were telling a story with feeling and energy, you would, do, you would probably do it something like this. You know, for too long, the people of the inner city have been racked with the misery of unnecessary gun violence. I spoke with Jenny Smith earlier today, somebody that lives in my district. She lost her beautiful baby boy of six years old to a high-powered rifle that needs to be taken off the streets. Her family mourns, ladies and gentlemen. All of a sudden, people are like, wait, this is interesting. Got some feeling, got some energy in there, right? If you speak, number five, if you speak in a victim's voice, make your story accessible, not exclusionary. That means essentially make it relatable to everybody. If you're telling a story about the rich kid, nobody cares. If you just tell the story about the kid, all of a sudden, hey, I know kids. I've got kids. I've seen kids before. Everybody knows what a kid looks like. Many of the most active advocates and voices in the gun violence prevention movement are people who have personally lived through a life-changing gun violence experience. That painful reality gives such spokespeople special moral authority, ladies and gentlemen. Back of the envelope, facts. They give you a few facts that you can just pump out. You can commit to memory and pump out. Here are some examples of powerful language. It breaks my heart that every day in our country, children wake up worried and frightened about getting shot. How many times have you heard this, ladies and gentlemen? Listen to these examples. Why do you think all of the why do you think all of the gun control arguments sound the same? It's because it's a system. It's because it's a process. It's because they are following a script. Just imagine the pain that a mother or father feels when their young child is gunned down. The real outrage, the thing that makes this violence so unforgivable, un unforgivable is that we know how to stop it and we're not getting it done. And they even give you some examples of ineffective language to avoid. Here's some ineffective language that if you are arguing for gun control that you should avoid using. There's a clear body of research demonstrating the high social cost of gun violence. That doesn't work. That doesn't play out in the sticks. You need to talk about the pain and anguish felt by the mother who lost her child, right? 
the policy outcomes we're after are the ones that can have the most beneficial impact on the rates of violence among the most affected populations. That is ineffective language, ladies and gentlemen. Number three, of course, gun violence affects people's lives, but it also has a devastating economic impact to the tune of $100 billion a year. That's a number that should get every taxpayer's attention. That is an example of ineffective language. And we've spoken about money using money figures before and the folly of using money figures. The reason that it's ineffective to talk about how much is being spent is because very few people can actually picture what $100 billion actually looks like, right? Very few people... Here's a poker trick for you. If you're experienced in poker, you know what a pile of chips, roughly how much a pile of chips of, of money is worth. So when you throw your chips into the pot, you throw them in there loose. But people who aren't experienced at playing poker can't calculate how much money is in the pot when it's sitting in a pile that needs to be neatly stacked for them so they can count it. So if you create a pile of chips in the middle of the pot, the inexperienced person is going to play differently because they'll think that there is more in there than there actually is. They'll think they're playing for a higher amount of money than they actually are because they can't calculate how much money is actually in there. They just think it's a lot, right? So they start to get a little more nervous and they start to get on edge a little bit and it changes the way they play. It makes them less aggressive. Just a little trick for you. What the other side says and how to counter. Strongest opposing argument, ladies and gentlemen. Silence. If you, if you pay close attention, you'll notice that our opponents seldom address gun violence directly. Best way to counter. You don't hear much from the NRA and their allies when violence strikes. That's because they can't possibly defend their reckless agenda in the face of such terrible human pain and suffering. This is the kind of rhetorical to and fro how you paint people into corners, right? If your opponent doesn't come out and address you directly, you say that he's afraid. Here's, here's, here's my favorite one. People, when they are getting criticized by, you know, say other people on the internet or, you know, in public life or what have you, if they are, if they are attacking somebody, if they are attacking their opponent and their opponent ignores them, they say, the reason my opponent is ignoring me is because he's afraid that I'm uh, on the right track here. He's afraid of me. He's afraid to debate me. Now, if the opponent, after being attacked, starts to attack back, the, the argument, the line, is the exact same. You say, the only reason my opponent is attacking me is because he's afraid of me. You see how this works? It doesn't actually matter what the opponent does or does not do. The line, the perception game for the audience, for us, remains the same. Whatever the guy does, say he's doing it because he's afraid. If an honest citizen with a gun were present, this might not have happened. There's not a shred of credible evidence that more guns and more shooting saved people's lives. How many times have you heard that? Key messaging principles start with people, not laws. Make it clear that weak and reckless policies put weapons in the hands of dangerous people. With base audiences, emphasize the uniquely destructive role that the NRA plays. And on and on it goes. We are only 20 pages into an 80-page document, ladies and gentlemen. So I will tweet that out for you right now. For those interested, let me pop that in a tweet. And we'll get out get it out there for those who are so inclined. How to effectively message the gun debate. Read it, learn it, understand it, and you will be never surprised by the gun debate ever again. 
There, there it goes. It's out there now. So grab hold of that. Enjoy. Chew on it. See what you think. All right. Uh, tell you what. We might leave the gun debate stuff there. I do have a couple of other little items that I want to get to. Perhaps something a little more on the lighter side of the news, perhaps. Let's let's go to this one. Thank you so much for joining us. You're on the Daily Boogie podcast. This one was sent through by General Eaton, ladies and gentlemen. Kamala Harris aide, two others arrested after allegedly running fake police force in Santa Clarita. <laughs> got I've got to check this out. Let's have a look here. Yeah, Bazaar is definitely right, Cher. Law enforcement says they became aware of this illegitimate police organization when members of the group actually contacted the Santa Clarita Sheriff's Station and sat down and talked with one of the captains. Now, anybody who's read the book The Da Vinci Code or seen the movie with Tom Hanks probably knows a thing or two about the Knights Templar. They're a sort of ancient <laughs> police organization. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This this went down a rabbit hole pretty quickly. <laughs> How the hell did we get to the Knights Templar all of a sudden and the Da Vinci Code? I, I thought this was about people impersonating police officers. All of a sudden we're doing, you know, mystic Catholic crusades in the underworld looking for artifacts. Holy cow, this 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 escalated quickly. And these guys claim to be members of a modern-day version of just that. <laughs> the legendary Knights Templar are an ancient medieval group that dates back nearly 1,000 years. Historians believe the Knights were like police for the Catholic Church. However, claiming to be a law enforcement officer of theirs today can get you thrown in jail, as three people from Santa Clarita found out. It appears that they were trying to, they were trying to basically just mislead the community by impersonating, you know, officers. LA County Sheriff's Department arrested three citizens, identifying themselves as... I don't, I don't want to be cruel or harsh here, uh, but does anybody remember the deputy in the Police Academy movies, ladies and gentlemen? Does anybody remember the little deputy in the Police Academy movies who was like four feet tall and not very intimidating? <laughs> I'm so I'm sure Deputy Sarah Rodriguez is an incredibly, uh, you know, an incredibly good sheriff. I'm sure she's a very fierce warrior when confronted with certain things on the streets. But do you remember once upon a time when police officers were all like six foot five burly guys? <laughs> It's kind of like, excuse me, excuse me, um, can you please stop robbing the bank, please? Excuse me. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it just reminded me of that. Basically just mislead the community by impersonating, you know, officers. The LA County Sheriff's Department arrested three citizens, identifying themselves as members of the Masonic Fraternal Police Department. He had the specific, like, ring, and I just asked about it, and it's about, like, an Illuminati, um, <laughs> it's a Masonic, and then it... <laughs> because I'm sure somebody who is attached to the Illuminati and the Masonic Orders, when asked about their super spe special secret ring that they just wear while they're out impersonating a police officer, I'm sure that if you just ask somebody, they'll just come out and tell you. <laughs> hey, man, cool ring. How did you get that ring? Well, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. It's funny you ask, actually. I'm looking forward to telling you about it. The reason I've got this ring is I am part of a super secret ancient order. <laughs> Really? Really? 
Yeah. It's attached to the Illuminati. It's called the Knights Templar. Have you ever seen the Da Vinci Code? Well, yes, I have, incidentally. Well, now don't tell anyone because <laughs> it's a secret. It's a super secret uh, special underground order. We're basically like uh, mystic police. So, you know, uh, just slow down. I noticed you ran a, a stop sign back there. So just chill out. Uh, you don't have any parking tickets by any chance, do you? No, no. Okay, good, good. Yep. That's what the Knights Templars doing these days. Just keeping the community safe. Making sure people aren't speeding in the school zone. <laughs> some some nice secret society we had there once. <laughs> it goes back like from ancient times. Inside like the from ancient homes, times? investigators say they found weapons, badges, vehicles, uniforms, and other law enforcement type equipment. I've seen 25, exactly 25 uh, cop cars. I just saw the, the police opening the garage and checking exactly everything Exactly 25 cop cars. Brandon Keel, along with Tanette Hayes and David Henry, the leader, were all charged for impersonating a peace officer. According to the LA Times, Keel was an aide to California's state attorney general, Kamala Harris. A neighbor to two of the suspects tells us he's seen them wearing their Masonic police uniforms before. They didn't have like any of the specific badges for the for the like LAPD or any of the cops. <laughs> it looks like they're they're an organization, um, and that's all they are. They didn't have any badges or anything like to identify that they were coppers, but they did have a super secret uh, Knights Templar ring. <laughs> that they couldn't wait to show off and explain to people randomly on the street. What they're claiming to be right now, and we don't have anything else on them. We don't At one of their it. Santa Clarita homes, the windows were all shut and no one answered the door. Neighbors tell us the Masonic couple that well, lives smart. there is very friendly and not the suspicious types. I'm just guessing that they didn't pull anyone over, did anything to... It's a friendly secret order. It's a friendly secret underground special order akin to the Da Vinci Code. Uh, where in the Da Vinci Code, people who are members of these secret orders are depicted as angry albinos with a bloodlust for people. You know, that was back then. These days, uh, where your friendly neighbourhood police officer pulling you over to make sure that you aren't speeding on helping old ladies across the road with their shopping, and we, we are more than happy to regale you with stories of the super secret underground order that we are a part of. <laughs> They're really, um, like, imprisoning a cop. Right. All three suspects were released from jail the same day they were arrested. However, oh, officers believe there are... Special, special deal. They probably flashed that ring. Am I right? They were released from jail the same day. Uh, hey, come in here. Officer, yes, yes. Uh, do you know when I might be able to get out of here today? Well, you broke numerous laws impersonating a police officer. You're going to be in here for a long time. Your ass is going to be locked up for a long time. Did I mention that I am part of the Knights Templar? Say no more. <laughs> hey, ho, 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 ha, ha. Secret handshake. There are still more members out there, and they're now urging people with information to come forward. Cher? Well, Steve, are, are, the, um, are the investigators thinking that this group may were actually trying to carry something out? Oh, that's a very important question here. Currently, important uh, investigators question. aren't sure what this group's purpose was. They say it's quite possible that these illegitimate officers just wanted to do their part in the fight against crime in their own way. <laughs> it's very possible that these people who are claiming to be part of a super secret ancient order, ladies and gentlemen, 
who were impersonating police officers and wearing rings and saying that they were part of the Knights Templar attached to Luciferian societies and the Illuminati and whatnot. Maybe they were just they maybe they were just trying to clean up the streets. <laughs> they were concerned citizens with a conscience. <laughs> Hey, everybody should have a police uniform every day. If everybody acted like a policeman, then there would be no trouble, would there? Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Oh, there he is. I'm here. There he is. Yeah, I've been listening. Thanks for joining us, Nova Moon. Can you can you turn the, the volume down or something? Because I'm hearing myself on replay here. Are you there? Hello? Hello? Is that better? No. <laughs> no. I turned the volume down on my side. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know why I'm hearing it on my so side. I don't know why I'm hearing it on my side. You haven't got what headphones you, in or something? Or? or something? Or? No, I'm just, I'm just talking on the phone. Okay. Well, Is it too loud? Well, no, no, that's fine. How about you? You tell us what you want to say. You tell us what you want to say. Okay. All right. I want to talk about a couple points that you brought up, and no one has been talking about this for years. I don't know exactly what the technology is called, but let's call it um, owner ID coding. Now, this technology has been around for a long time where they could actually build a gun. And then when you buy the gun, it's coded to your finger, your fingerprint. You're the only one that can shoot that gun. Yep. And they wanted to start selling these guns to gun stores. And I know being a conservative and the second amendment, uh, you shouldn't criticize the NRA, but I'm critical that they would not support this. In fact, they went after these gun shops that wanted to sell um, guns that were coded to the person that were buying them. Now, just think about all the lives that would have been saved. You have a young kid picking up the gun from the parent that didn't put it in a safe. Well, they can't shoot the gun. Yep. You I, I know, I know of this technology, by the way, I'm just, I'm just going to mute you for a sec. So, because the echo is really putting me off. So <clears throat> I know about this technology. I've heard about it before and it's also in a form of microchips. I suspect the reason that the NRA is against um, such a technology would be that it's probably going to harm gun sales, right? Because if you have only one gun or only people with a certain kind of identifying chip in their hand can fire a certain kind of firearm, then that's going to really dampen down uh, gun sales, right? And so how do you sell one gun from one person to another? Do we have to reprogram a chip every time we do it? And, you know, just on the lighter side, um, I wouldn't be fantastic to see, well, now that we, we don't just steal your guns anymore, now we're going to have to cut your hand off as well in order to use it. So. Why wouldn't you just do it 
for police officers. So if a criminal tries to steal the police officer's gun, they can't shoot him with it. Well, it's funny you say that. Um, one of my favorite YouTube shows, a show called Revenge of the Sis, they were talking about uh, an incident a few weeks ago where a police officer, I think she was in Miami, and I think she was actually the sergeant. I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, she was at a restaurant enjoying some nice fucking Tex Mex or whatever she was eating. And she went to the bathroom, took off her gun belt because she couldn't get her pants down to go to the toilet and just left her gun, her police issue uh, pistol, sitting on the rest, sitting on the toilet and walked out <laughs> and just left it there. And somebody obviously walked in to the restaurant and picked up the gun and said, oh, great, free, free gun and wandered out of there. And there was a big drama about it because she lied about it and she didn't report it and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I don't think... Um, why would it be necessary for only police officers? Because those kinds of stories, humorous when they happen, but uh, they're not very commonplace, am I wrong? No, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, um, people do steal things from the cops. <laughs> sure, not often, though. Sure, not often, though. No, not often. But I just, uh, I just wonder why they wouldn't support this type of technology okay okay well that's fair enough the only other thing i wanted to bring up was uh the red flag issue sure i think that's a slippery slope oh yeah of course um, yeah i mean you have family members that think you're crazy you have an ex that doesn't like you yep <laughs> i mean just think of all the the bad things that could go wrong with that. Well, we've already got it now where people make up stories. So uh, people, you know, parents can't get uh, custody of their children. It'll just be another avenue for a lot of people to, um, you know, inflict a lot of misery and people that they have issues with. And, you know, I, somebody was saying that Trump is even suggesting that uh, people should be reported directly off social media where it's already difficult enough to determine sarcasm and humour for a lot of people on the interwebs, uh, now all of a sudden we want to red flag people on social media so they can uh, get a knock at the door, you know, from the law enforcement agency and say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but your social media profile has been red flagged. We have a warrant here to search your home for any weapons you might have and confiscate them. If you'd like to get them back, you need to... Uh, adhere to a number of psychological analysis on this particular date and show up in court. Um, yeah. And like, like I said, there are people out there in the social media influencer sphere who last week would have said that this is a horrible idea who now, just because Donald Trump is suggesting it, are going to be saying, well, you know, it's about time. We should get the, the guns out of the hands of the crazy people. Right. <laughs> Which I have, a, I, have, I have an issue with, obviously. Well, there was a, a, a veteran that someone called on and they went to his house and uh you know to take his guns and he, you know well he's dead now they shot so yep i don't know exactly how the story played out well yeah i've i've heard oh, that yeah, too and i've i've heard other stories of um you know police showing up to take a whole bunch of guns from people in the whole town standing in front of the house and not letting them. It's it, to me, it looks like a short sighted back of the envelope idea to throw out there, see what people talk about, see what people say. 
and to in all honesty, I don't think that uh, Donald Trump's support in the you know the Second Amendment community would allow it to stand. I think if he went with something like that, he would get certain kind. He would get a, a fair amount of research from his policy guys and his polling guys who would say, Mr. President, if you push ahead with an idea like this, you are going to get murdered in 2020. And that might be the end of it then. You know what I mean? I think you were right earlier where I think he had to come out with a speech today to try to cover all the bases and really wasn't going to push a policy issue today. Sure. It was just like, okay, let's bring up all these issues and I'm not going to answer any questions, and he didn't. He walked away. Yeah, just something, just something to get out there, something to try and change the story, something to try and get the story away from the more negative aspects that people have been focusing on, and try to redirect the conversation. A typical PR move, right? That's PR, right? Exactly. Yep. Even though he's a yep. a Nazi. <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> of course. Nova Moon, thanks for joining us, my friend. It's always right. a pleasure to hear from you. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Okay. Sorry about the. That's all right. That's, That's all, right. all right. Or the echo. All right. all right. Have a good night. You too. There he goes. So, what do you think of all that? If you if you've got something to say to all that, then please, by all means, jump on the Discord, have a chat. Be more than happy to have a chat with you. Um, do try to put some headphones in though, if you do want to call in. Let's do another article here, and give somebody a little bit of time to call in if they are so inclined. And then I've got probably the most horrific uh, news story. For me, far more horrific than innocent people getting gunned down in the street. Far more horrifying, far more scary, far more confronting than any kind of gun violence. And I'm going to share it with you right after this article. But first, mum credited with inventing gender reveal parties begs people to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, my best friend recently had his second child and they were having a gender reveal party. And I asked him in all in all earnestness, in all honesty, I said, why the hell are people doing these gender reveal parties? And he's like, oh, it's always been a thing. You know, you get everybody together and you reveal like if it's blue or pink for a boy or a girl. And I said, yeah, no, I understand the logistics of it. But when did this become a thing? Isn't it good enough to just wait until the baby's born and then tell everybody, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl? Like, what, what the hell was wrong with that? Is this just another excuse for people to eat cake? Do we really need another excuse to eat cake? Like, I'm not even a cake. If you're not a cake fan, I don't eat cake. I don't like it, right? I'm just putting that out there. Very seldom will I eat a piece of cake. Honestly, I don't eat cake at birthdays, at weddings. No, thanks. Don't like it. Not a fan of cake. If you're not a cake eater you really notice how much people try to feed you cake all the time. <laughs> like, if you like cake, you don't have a problem. You're like, yeah, I love a piece of cake. You don't really notice it. It's like if you're a recovering alcoholic, you really start to notice all of a sudden how many people in your life drink every day, right? <laughs> you wouldn't have noticed before because it wasn't an issue. So if you don't eat cake, you're like, every week somebody's trying to shovel cake into my mouth and they get really offended when you don't eat it. Have you noticed that? If you're not a cake fan, have you noticed how people take it as like a personal insult? Would you like some cake? Oh, no, thanks. I'm not a big fan of cake. Oh, well, okay. It's like I'm obliged to eat it because they made it or they bought it from a store. It's like this is the social norm. 
If somebody presents cake, if somebody puts cake in the fucking room, you absolutely have to eat it lest you are offending their ancestors going back to the, the, the dawn of time. Lest you are smiting their unborn children's grave or something. It's like, Jesus Christ, man. I just don't like cake. Don't take it personally. Gina Kuravindas, a Los Angeles blogger. Oh, those Los Angeles bloggers. Those Los Angeles bloggers. You know, I'm not in favor of uh, indiscriminate crime and death squads, but <laughs> if there was ever a Los Angeles blogger squad on the loose, I may have to turn a blind eye. Especially if they're trying to give me cake all the time. Who is credited with the creating the gender reveal party now wants to tre the trend to end, according to a post she put on Facebook. She was expecting her first child in 2008 and decided to have a party. The party was covered by Bump magazine. Kouravindis was interviewed and then says the idea spread from there. I felt, I've felt a lot of mixed feelings about my random contribution to the culture, Kouravindis said. It just exploded into crazy after that. Literally, guns firing, forest fires, more emphasis on gender than has ever been necessary for a baby. In the decades since Kouravindis popularized the trend, it has traveled all over the world, including to Australia. Australia! where a gender reveal party took a dramatic turn as a car used to spew blue, blue smoke suddenly ignited. I have to show you this because they're saying how this is horrible. This, this is one of the most Australian things you will ever see. So I'm not in favor of gender reveal parties, but if there must be a gender reveal party, can we do it with burnouts in a souped up V8, please? <laughs> in a field somewhere in Outback Australia? Have a look at this. So there he goes. It's a boy. Woo! <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> See, now this kind of gender reveal party, this is fine. Because this could just be hooning on a Saturday afternoon after too many beers. Look at him go. All the way. The whole family is out there to enjoy, to witness this beautiful moment. That the gender of the child is revealed to be a boy. Keep it going, son. Keep it going. And then... Kaboom! <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast, the car that was being driven, uh, the guy was doing burnouts in to reveal the gender of the child has now burst into flames. So. <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah! Woo! Fuck yeah! It's a boy, motherfucker! One of the most Australian things you'll ever see. All right, nobody else has uh, wanted to call in, so... Let me take you to this, and this will see us out for the rest of the day. Thanks for joining us on the Daily Boogie. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the most horrifying story that to come out of the weekend. And by all means, you can have concern for the people who have lost loved ones in mass, shooting, in mass shootings, but whilst you're doing that, spare a thought for Australians who this weekend were confronted with this most devastating news. The cost of basic goods is on the rise, and in a few days, you'll have to pay more for a schooner of beer. No! No! <laughs> no! 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 Oh, no! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! No! No! How much more? How much more? A fresh tax hike hits on Monday, oh. causing many Australians to tighten their belts. Nazis!
You Nazis! Fuck you, Nazis! And hit retailers. Father Durand works hard so he can spend on his son, but as a business owner, he also pays plenty of tax. Taxes are incredible. We're the highest tax country in the world with the most amount of public. How long is it going to be before some Australian writes a manifesto? Dear horrible, cruel world, I don't care about other races. I am a very nice guy. I don't get angry about anything. But today, I had to pay 30 cents more for a beer. This is unacceptable. I am taking you all with me. How long until that happens? <laughs> what do you expect? More essential goods and life's little luxuries are going up. Everyone's doing it tough. The tax on packaged beer rises by 30 cents a litre on money. You bastards. You sick, sick bastards. Notice how they try to say that beer is like a luxury item. No, no, no. Beer is an essential item. It is an it is a dietary foundation for the people of Australia. This is a beer is a cultural icon, ladies and gentlemen. Here, beer is something that we must. Beer is not a luxury in Australia. Beer is literally the life force of our society. Monday, in line with the latest consumer price index. It may not sound a lot in and of itself, uh, but it certainly adds up, particularly when you consider that you uh, taxation is the single biggest you cost bastards. in the price of an Australian-made beer. Brett Heffernan from the Brewers Association of Australia. There is more tax in an Australian beer than there is the cost of making the beer. Do you believe it? Australia says... See, this is the problem. This is the problem when you live in a country that was founded by criminals, Right? Here in Australia, here in Australia, we just assume that everybody's trying to rip us off all the time because the country was founded by criminals. The people are criminals. The politicians are criminals. Everybody's a criminal and everybody's trying to get their piece of the pie. That's why taxes are so high, because it's legal theft. That's why. You know, sure, sure, we're a country founded by criminals, but hey. Did you know if we get voted in, then we can just steal for free? Really? Man, I love this country. <laughs> you bastards. The excise is likely to be passed on to consumers at the bottle shop and over the bar. It will be an individual matter for each brewer to make that decision. In the year 2000, a carton of... Oh, the price of cigarettes, Steph, you, wouldn't, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Uh, a price, uh, a, a pack of, say, 25 cigarettes, depending on where you go, right? But a pack, a pack of 25 cigarettes will probably cost you around 40 Australian dollars, roughly. So that would be, in American money, probably around $28, $30 American for a pack of 25 cigarettes. I know, it's ridiculous, right? Long necks cost $28. Look at that. So back in the year 2000, a pack of long necks, which are big beer bottles, right? 750 mils. Back in the year 2000, they cost you 28 bucks. $28. Now buying a dozen 750 mil sized beers is $63 more. <laughs> it's like, how much do I have to give? How much do we have to give? And if you ever wondered why I'm not a fan of government spending programs, if you've ever wondered why I'm a fan of fiscal responsibility when it comes to government, try being an Australian where tax is just part of everyday life. 
where, you know, tax can account for more than half of the cost of a beer. More than it takes to make the beer. Hire the factory, get the grain, get the wheat, get the barley, get the hops, put it in the big mixer, cook it up, ferment it, have people running around with little trolleys, have people working in the warehouse stacking it, have people putting it on the trucks, have the trucks take it to the store, pay the truck driver, pay the guys making it, pay the guys looking after it. All of that costs less than the tax that the government puts on it. Right? And then you have you have mindless, knuckle-dragging, drooling fucking morons in this country who are like, the government needs to spend more money. It's like, where the hell are you getting the money from? <laughs> where the fuck do you think the money's coming from? We basically have to take out a mortgage to go out and enjoy a cocktail with friends in the city. The government needs to spend more money. Fuck you. How about that? And now they're raising the price of beer. See, nothing. The, the great thing about the Australian culture and the Australian society is also its biggest downfall. It's a paradox. Australians are very, very laid-back, easygoing people, generally, right, by and large. Uh, we're not quick to outrage. We're not quick to get upset. It's kind of like whatever's happening, Australians are like, meh, well, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? So that makes it a very, you know, pleasant place to live and makes Australians very pleasant people. But at the same time, it means the governments know that they can just screw us angrily and dry relentlessly and we're not going to do anything about it. (laughs) So the greatest thing about being an Australian is also the worst thing. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is by far the most horrifying story to emerge over the weekend and I don't think you can blame me for saying so thank you so much for joining us I'll be back tomorrow night at 11pm ladies and gentlemen on the Daily Boogie podcast thank you for being here thank you for sharing the show out if you'd like to become a supporter of the show please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper become a subscriber by hitting the subscribe button on your preferred podcast player and of course if you would like to send your condolences to my lost money in my beer wallet, then you can do so by following me on Twitter at Boogie Bumper. Until next time, guys, stay calm, stay rational. God bless, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. everyone. I'll see you tomorrow night at 11pm. If you want that, if you want that Democrat Party handbook, uh, check my Twitter timeline. I tweeted it out during the show. See you all tomorrow night, guys. Have a good one. Bye-bye.